Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Scottish Property Podcast. I'm joined today with Stephen Clark, my co-host, and we're delighted to have a special guest on the show today. It's Ross Harper. Welcome to the show, Ross. Hi guys, how you doing? Thanks very much for joining us, Ross. Um, I'm really excited to hear your story and you know, someone with a vast experience in property, so I'm really excited for this interview. So Thank Ross... You. Just for the people who don't know who you are, could you just give us a quick background resume and what you've done property up to now and where you're at with your businesses right now, please? Yeah, no problems. So um, it's quite a long story because I'm old. Um, so I qualified as a surveyor. There were no jobs in the early 90s when I came out into surveying, worked for Countrywide and for Slater Hog for quite a few years as a estate agent. So I learned most of my trade and skills at that point. Um, Became a developer in the late 90s, 1999-2000, did that till 2008, struggled really badly with 2008, I know we'll touch on that later on, um, really, really struggled 2008 to 2010, I watched 10 episodes of Homes Under the Hammer, I know everybody's very critical of it, but I thought I could do that, so I started an auction company um, along with a guy called Davy Hutton, we had quite a good, we did a year of that, then we went our separate ways. Um, set up another auction company and got going with property auctions and that went quite well and got back into buying and selling probably around about 2011, 2012 and my main business is just now, my core businesses are Auction House Scotland, National Property Auction, I've got a trading company that buys and sells houses, building company that refurbishes properties and I've got a couple of development sites in the go, most notably Belmont Waste. I've got some businesses down south now, care home businesses. So as, I, as I've kind of gone on, I've expanded into things. I've set things up. I've set up a letting agency, set up a financial services business. Didn't like them. They didn't really suit my personality, so I got out of those. So I kind of concentrate on property trading and how to add value to property. So that's kind of my, my kind of prime time at the moment. That's excellent. And I, I would say pretty much after listening to all that, they're probably fair to say that you, there's not much that you haven't done in property when we look at when, when we look at everything all said and done. Um, I mean, I know you'd sort of describe yourself mainly as a property trader. Would that be kind of fair to say? I think the, vo- the volume of work that I've done is property trading and I like trading. I don't really like property rentals, but I've gone to what I'm doing with that. Um, going forward I've built portfolios before but I like buying and selling things I like buying houses at one price selling at another that, that's what gives me a buzz so I see myself as a property trader uh, and my wife keeps saying stop saying that you're really you're, you're a business owner now that's it but at the end of the day the deal's the bit that gets me excited it's what gets you up in the morning and gets you out and about and it's how you source those deals that I find interesting but it's quite interesting, Ross, that you never went the typical kind of route um, of building a buy-let portfolio as a foundation first. You went straight into development. I love that because I, I enjoy developments a lot more than, than building the portfolio side of it. Was that on purpose or was it just something so, you fell into? So, well, okay, it's a good story. I don't know if you know that. There's a, a, in 1999, I bought my first, what was my buy-to-let. I had my own flat, I sold it, and I bought a studio flat in Nielsen Road in Baisley. And I moved in there. I think we paid eight grand for it. So I had a wee bit of money stored out from my own flat. I'd been working for seven or eight years and I went and bought a buy to let with that. And it was in Dalhousie Court in Glasgow. And at the time, I stole it when I was buying it and I paid £50,000 for it. We painted it, didn't do anything else to it. So I went in every night in my Adidas trainers and my crack suit and was stripping wallpaper, painting and doing everything. I was quite proud of it. It took me about four months to do. And the next door neighbour was, he was a very small old Chinese man and you got to see him because you're in at night and stuff and he just came one day and he said, look, I'd like to buy your flat. And I'm thinking, I've just done all this work, I'm not selling it. And he said, no, no, I'd like to buy it though. And I said, well, I've just done all this work. I'm going to rent it out to somebody. And I said, how much would you pay? And he said, 75,000. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, I probably was earning probably just a wee bit more than that in a year. And I'd made it four months working nights, you know, as a complete novice. And so I did the deal. And so what, what I started off with, I started to buy something that was a buy to let, but because I was able to flip it for more money, I then got into the trading side of it or got into property development, if you like. I think there's quite narrow lines between these types of things. So I did that once, did it a second time, did it a third time and sold the three things. And that gave me a wee bit of a pot of money to get going. So in effect, I bypassed buy to let quite quickly. I should say I'm pretty handless. Um, as other people have said, I can't put a nut in a starving monkey's mouth. So <laughs> I have no idea. I can't do, you know, in our house, my wife has to fix things. I am completely handless. So quite quickly, I realised that if I wanted to do property, I was going to have to get people in to do it up. 
And then when you've got a job and you're working at night time doing these things, you actually quite like the security of knowing that the profits are coming in. So it's not, it wasn't a long-term investment view after that. You get thinking, well, if I could buy that for 50 and sell it for 75, or buy that for 70 and sell it for 100, you knew then the way I was seeing it, I was replacing my salary as opposed to building a big investment pot. Can you give people just a little bit of context, Ross, about the kind of volume of stuff you do? Because at your kind of peak, you know, I've heard you talk about some numbers, which I kind of had to like replay the recording a couple of times to really kind of get a grasp of the kind of... Do do you mean as a buyer? Yeah, so like Uh, as a kind of uh, buying and selling houses, like give us an idea. So so in the last last seven years, um, and we checked the number not that long ago, it's about 1,200 houses that I bought, 1,200. Um, and it, and I've sold most of them. So I've built portfolios two or three times and then ultimately sold them. The biggest um, pot that I bought, I bought 90 properties, um, which was a distressed portfolio in Fife. I, I, I'm two, interested in that story because this is in my, my hometown. This, this recovering from the recession. That's right, yeah. Yes. So it was, it was two... Um, it was two publicans, road trader type guys in Fife that fell out of these two brothers and there was a high court case about it, so it's all public knowledge. And I bought it. It was quite a hard thing to put together. There's all sorts going on in the, the portfolio. It was a pretty horrible thing to buy and it was quite a, a kind of low time that we were refurbishing it because you could see evidence of all sorts of wrongdoing in it. But that was 90 units. So we bought that in one fell swoop and um, bought that and traded through it. It took maybe a year, 15 months to trade through, and that gave work for a year. We did 90 houses we could then sell out through the estate agency. We probably overall tripled the value of it over that period of time from what we paid for it to ultimately what we sold out at, and that went really well. I've bought some other distressed portfolios, 35 units, 45 units. So although the numbers sound quite big at 1,200, it wasn't all 1,200 individual houses. And I've got different systems, I've got different mechanisms that I use when I'm buying things. I'm not the same as everybody else. So I've, I've got your, your auction house um, company then? No, no, no. These are all open market purchase. They're all open market purchase? Yeah, they're all open markets. So the auction house thing, this is a question I think a lot of people ask me, and you see it online and you see competitors saying, oh, they buy all their own stock. I don't buy terribly much through the auction house. And if I do... Um, if I see something that I like, I just disclose who I am, what I am, tell the person what we do. It's much easier, perfectly transparent, perfectly honest. Um, and I own the auction house company. I don't work in it at all. It's got its own managing director. It's got its own directors. It's got its own kind of board of people who, who work within it, who organise it all. So for me, like today, there's something came out and I thought, well, that looks quite a good deal. So you, you go and have a sniff about um, so I've got lots of funnels of people who bring me properties. There'll be people listening to this who I just buy straight from. They source it. We've got a thing called Sourcer we use in the, the office, um, which brings sourcers a, a mechanism to exit their deals. And if I like the deals, I'll buy them. There's yeah. thousands of deal sourcers just now, people who call themselves deal sourcers. So there's, there's, there's quite a few opportunities for that to be honest. Well, let's just, let's just dive into that for a second, Ross. So like, would it be fair to say that if I went along to one of the national uh, property auctions, which is a company that you run here. You've got the branding yep. in behind you. Would it be fair to say that there'll be some of the stock in that auction? Would some of that may well be some houses that you've purchased and then trading <laughs> through, out through the auction? Yeah, yeah, so that's what I like doing. I like buying out with my auction and then selling it again through auction. So my mechanism, the reason we've probably sold so many is, and I'll just use notional figures here. So I'll turn that down. Um, the... the everybody's interested in getting the best price when they sell. That doesn't bother me at all. I'm interested really much in getting the best price when I buy. Buy the thing at the lowest possible price and turn it quickly. So I look at it, if I buy something that's worth £100,000, I might pay £60,000 for it in the open market. And then I'll stick it back into the office or the auction at a guide price of sixty, and it might sell for £75,000. Rarely do I hold on to it to try and get £100,000. So you're turning things over quickly. So as long as there's enough margin in it to do that, I'm quite comfortable selling out through the auction. That As long as you're 15 20% less than market value, the auctions are a really fast way of generating things. We've got, I don't know, before the big 
cull. We had about 45,000 investors throughout the UK who were buying. But the reality of it, there's probably 50 or 60 active buyers who are keen to buy things. So we know we were selling to. So from my point of view, it's just agreeing a purchase with the person who wants to sell it to me, whether it's an estate agent, a lawyer, an administrator, a surveyor. There's all sorts of different people introduced to me. So I'll buy it in and then flip it back out. The only thing that I think I benefit from is, and it's not perfect knowledge because everybody makes mistakes, but I know what people are wanting at the far end. So I watch lots of people on social media saying, oh, I've bought this and it's worth 120 grand. I've got to be careful what village I pick here. I come from East Kilbride. It's worth 120 grand in East Kilbride when it's done and I've paid 102 for it. But actually, when I, I'm thinking it's not worth 120 grand, a three bed's just sold 130. Yours is a two bed. It's tired. It was probably worth 100 grand, which is what you paid for it. You should have been paying 80 for it. So when you see the story four months later, I've now rented it out. It's because they can't sell it for profit. So I've got good knowledge of what things are selling for. The guys that work with me are all have all been doing it for quite a wee while, so they're quite knowledgeable as well. So the one thing that I've got that most people don't have is instant access to that. Sorcery gives other people access to that, so they get it through John, who you'll see John Loudon's all over the internet. He is the face of auction house is the face of national so most people recognize john lots of people think he runs the business mandy that's still not true um but john is the face of that so people get access to him that can get them that kind of knowledge but that's the bit that i benefit from and i know what people are looking for yeah, that's good could I, can i can i take you back to that 90 property portfolio in because yes. um, that's that's very interesting that's how you can kind of, you got burnt very badly in the recession. And this was like one of the first major deals you've done right at the back of it. So I love how big you think to go for something right at the back of something that's probably probably painful and emotional to, I'm going to buy 90 properties at a million pound. So what how what was the thought process and, and basically how was it funded and how was it put together? Like how did you go from- I did it with a, I did it with a JV partner. Right. So um, to, to go back to the emotional side of it, um, 2008 came and at the end of 2008, I didn't think there was any problems. I still, I knew all the estate agents because that's what I'd done before. Knew lots of surveyors, they were all my friends. I could get access to cheap properties. I had no clue about the banking. Um, I've got an economics degree, but I wasn't following that close. It was quite a simple business at the time. So when the run came in the bank and my hunting license, I had a hunting license with RBS and it basically got torn up. I bought four houses on it. Hunting license is a big portfolio product that they said, we'll give you five million quid. You can go out and buy whatever you want with that five million quid. You don't need to worry about it. They just because you're track record and you're experiencing. Yeah, I, I kind of knew what I was doing and that's exactly it. But with that, that got ripped up because it wasn't secured against anything very quickly. And I just thought, oh, I've, I've worked out how to do these things before. Um, there was no pain to it. I was thinking, right, fine. So I had 40-odd houses that I was bought and quite a lot of them were missives and I had to buy myself out of these missives and deal with all that. But I thought at some point, quite quickly, I'll replace that funding. And I must have spent 18 months, two years going around trying to replace that funding. It took me two years to work out this is not happening. It really did take two years. Right, at some point, I'm going to have to get another job because this is not working out. I had 20 vitalettes in my own name at the time, and I was basically robbing Peter to pay more. Paul with credit cards, rents coming in, taking my rents in, paying my credit card down, putting my family shopping in the next credit card. It was all that kind of stuff. It was a really, really tough time. But that's partly down to my inability to see like, see over the parapet and see what was going on elsewhere. Once I took the view that um, things had changed, it actually worked out quite well. So I didn't have any emotional bit of, um, I think, go bankrupt. Um, I was probably trading at quite a negative deficit at one point. I didn't bankrupt myself, the properties were on my own name. I went through a relationship change where I split up with my partner at the time, so that was, a, that was a troublesome time. But at no point did I lose sight of the fact that I know how to do this, I know how to buy houses, I know how to refurbish them, I know how to like do deals. So I just kept thinking, how, how do I get myself in a position to do that again and worked my way through it. So when it came to that deal, I had been approached by a guy who ran a bridging company to say, hey, how do you fund your deals when you buy them? Um, and I said, well, I'm trying to do it with cash. There's a wee bit of this and that. And he went, so if I got you somebody who's got a bit of money and he put us together in a, a JV par partnership, it was relatively successful. And that was one of the, well, that was the biggest deal we did. And it was also one of the most successful we did in terms of how we got in and how we got out of it. Because the quantum in 90 units, you were able to buy them at a significant discount. And I wasn't, 
I, I wasn't aware of um, all that had gone on in the flats when we got them. We weren't allowed to see some. I'm not saying there was nothing wrong with it. It was actually the Clydesdale Bank that we physically bought it off of. But it was quite a long, slow process to get it bought. But then once you were into it, even refurbishing and selling and going through all these even the agency side of 90 units was quite a big thing. But at no point in any of this was I sitting thinking, this is going to be tricky. This is not. This is going to be a hard thing to do. It was just a case of, it's 90 times what I've done before. Did you have a joint venture partnership funding in place before going looking for that deal or, or, or going to the so, so we actually had a company. And we had a, so we did, did the joint venture. I know people use that term quite a lot just now. And they talk about and they just borrow money from somebody and do that. But I didn't. I, made to, I went ahead and we got a... a limited company, an LLP, I think we put it into at the time, and he was there to guarantee the money. And at the outset, I put very little into it, but I said I would do the property. So I dealt with the property, the sourcing, the refurbishment, all the development works that needed done, any of the planning stuff, dealing with the councils, all that. So I dealt with all of that throughout, and he put the money in, and then we used to sit with him and his finance director every week and sit and go through, this is what we're doing with this, and this is what we're doing with that one. So it worked quite well. Can I just talk a little bit about that relationship, Ross? Because one of the big questions that people always ask is, you know, how do we find investors? How do we find people that are going to lend us money, et cetera, right? Was that a a friendship or was that, you know, somebody that knew what you'd done before? Had it been built over a period of time? Like... So it was, a bridge, it was a bridging funder who I didn't know. I'd never, I didn't even know what bridging was. I didn't use bridging. But it, it, the terms have all changed. Bridging is quite a common term now. Um, it was a bridging funder um, who knew this guy had money and knew I could do deals. And he cleverly put the deal together and he got 10% of the deal. That was his share in it. So I had to go through an interview process, but I didn't really know. Again, I didn't really know that's what I was doing. I didn't realise they were interviewing me for, for something at this kind of level. Um, and... I was quite focused, but the thing about it is I do know my trade. So uh, I already owned Glasgow Property Agency, which was trading EMV properties, um, although that term probably didn't exist at the time. Um, I did have lots of opportunities coming across my desk. I was going to say that. I was going to say about opportunities as a business owner, because obviously if you've built a successful business, you know, a state agency, auction company, property development and that, you know, that obviously builds credibility. And I think where a lot of people go wrong, because we've got a lot of people just starting out in property that listen to the podcast. And I think they're kind of sold by a lot of the gurus and the training and that, that you can just go out there and people throw money at you. But I always say, well, you've got to build your credibility, whether it's through a business or whether you're showing people developments and stuff you've done in the past. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the internet's a great thing. um, And social media is a really good thing because you get information a lot quicker but the quality of the information is quite hard to know especially if you're you're new in these things so if you watch some of the pinstripe predators and the guys with big knots in their ties and you speak at events and conferences and get people in a room saying this is how you do it if you're a novice if you've not done it before lots of times you don't really know so i get lots of link i'm quite active on linkedin and uh, i get lots of people like linking to me on LinkedIn and you see the, the term property investment strategist, which is a bit of a misnomer. It doesn't actually exist. It's not a term other than it coming out of a, a certain training course. And not being critical, but the guys that run the training course aren't really property guys. They're educators. They're not, they might say they are, but they haven't bought 90-unit portfolios. They haven't bought 1,200 houses. They haven't built 1,000-unit portfolios. They haven't, so Set on the, theory on, the theory on the property and the theory on yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but when they sell the theory, I don't think they sell the downside often enough. And they're no. very quick to promote guys. This guy's done absolutely amazing. Like Raymond Logan's a close friend of mine now. And he was somebody that I had my own on social media for quite a long time. But he was involved with one of those companies for a while. He will kill me when he, when he um, hears me say this. Um, but he, he reached out to me. And although I, I quite liked the cut of his jib and what I'd seen, um, I didn't really do anything with it. And then when I saw that, you could just tell all his communication had split from those guys and, you know, he'd gone his own way and he was doing something else. I was on holiday and I actually saw it on social media and I texted him and just said, look, do you fancy grabbing a coffee when I come back from holiday? And we've now, we said, ultimately from that conversation, we tried to set up a business. I'm all about setting up businesses as opposed to trying to get a one-hit wonder. We tried to set up a business doing an accountancy procedure. It didn't really work out. I pulled the plug on it right at the last minute. 
uh, we then set up a charity called the Next Step Foundation, which helped football players, rugby players, sports people in general throughout the UK transition out of sport. And it gave them help with health and mental health and suicide lines and all sorts of things to deal with. But also gave them training courses, how to get on to the next thing. We did that for a year. And then we set up a care home business together, which we own jointly, but he runs. And But you can see he was a guy that was in one of those education communities, but actually had quite a lot to offer the community before he was promoted to being the superstar. And my point with this is you don't hear, you might hear of the three successes out of 100 who have done all these things because it's important for them. Every week they'll tell you the winner's Wednesday or whatever terminology they've got for it. But what they don't tell you is the other 97 people who have been struggling or can't get a deal across the line Mm -hmm. because they've not been taught correctly because what they've been taught doesn't really work in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit that's probably a wee bit different, that if you know what you're doing, there are certain things that people have been taught to do that you just don't do. But then their their argument would be, well, that's down to the person not taking the action, isn't it? That's always the line. It's... The, the yeah, strategy maybe. and the education works, but it's down to that individual. So I'm just putting it from yeah. the other side, you know. I mean, so no, and and in all business, that's that's true. And we've got lots of and had lots of staff at one point last year. I think I had about 140 staff in total. And um, you can see some people work harder than others, but probably I could probably argue if there was um, 50% were doing fantastically and 50 were struggling, you could see that that's a fair argument. But I think when you look at it. How is so the dream is sold? Leave your work in ninety days. Do this. Do there's all sorts of sales pitches that have evolved over yeah. the time. And talking and about probably, so, sorry, talking about the the kind of dream that they sell and stuff like that. You know, yeah. one of the big things that I think where people that don't have any money and they look into the strategies as they call them, you know, they're lured into this. Uh, they call it the deal sourcing, right? So. In, in effect, you know, you're going out there, you're finding properties, you're trying to negotiate a discount, and then you're trying to sell them on to investors and take a, a, a buyer's fee, you know, a, a cut, basically. Now, I'm looking at your business, right? And I'm, I use your example all the time because people say, well, how do I get access to these off-market deals and these leads? And I say, well, for a start, you're basically going out there and competing against all the big boys because... The people who are searching buy my house quick for cash or quick sale property, you know, yeah. they're the websites that are coming up in front of them in Google probably pretty much are owned by yourself and maybe two others in Scotland. Yeah. And what I say to them is, you know, you guys are putting big, big numbers towards marketing and advertising. And you're trying to like compete with that. And I'm just saying, it's just very difficult. And then you've got the course gurus saying, oh, you just need to go around and put some, you know, flyers out and some, do some promotion, put the postcards out and the bandit boards up, you know, and you'll get direct to vendor leads through, you know, can you give us a wee bit of background? I mean, you obviously. So so we've done flyers in millions and millions and millions of them over the time and they do work, but they're, they're not very trackable. And it's a wee bit hit and miss. And where we're trying to sell 60, 70 houses a month pre-COVID doesn't quite work that way. It's, it's, you don't get enough from it. Um, we've done newspaper advertising. We've done radio advertising. Our best hits have come from, the best things that we've bought have come from word of mouth, to be honest. It's just come from people who've said, this is what they do, go and speak to them, kind of go and sort it out. Um, there's two things to what you're saying that I think are really, really important. One is... It's the amount of advertising you've got. So we might spend forty, fifty thousand pounds in a month in advertising across multiple channels. But remember that that's covering all of Scotland, so it's not just one area. Mm-hmm. But that that brings the stuff in. But it, then it's the quality of the service in terms of before it even comes to the point of getting in the market. So we're different from other um, companies who are just trying to buy a house. So we can talk to people about a cash buy. So we'll Ross buy it um, and we're quite upfront. we can we'll buy ourselves uh, we'll talk to them about online auctions and what national can do for them what auction house can do for them what our estate agency can do for them and a lot of these people have been in the market before they don't automatically think i'm going to sell my house fast to a cash buy company so they've been in the market they've seen what an aberdeen coincidence or a slater hog or a, 
a local letting agency selling it can do. And we're saying, well, we don't do those things. That's fine. We would, if you want 100% of open market value uh, or you've got a big house and it's not suitable for us, we'll recommend where you go to that will best fit your house. But the things we can help with these three or four different challenges, this is how we'd overcome them. This is how quickly you get your money and this is how you do it. But there's maybe three or four people in that position. So at no point has Ross Harper ever spoken to them because we've got a call centre, we've got people in the call centre who are answering the phones, who are trained. Mandy's a, a brilliant runner or organiser of that business, the managing director. She's trained them how to deal with people. She has trained them how to be kind, how to be, like, to, to do what the people have done, to, or, or been taught to do in the training courses. But then they're handed over to, I'll use David as an example, he's not much in social media, but then he's, he's got nine years of experience of doing this. And he can say to them, well, your house in a broth, I sold the one round the corner and been on at 100 and we sold it for 87,000. Yours is a wee bit nicer, a wee bit less, so you're likely to get this or that. So that level of knowledge isn't people using NLP, trying to trick the seller, trying to get NDAs. There's all sorts of different ways that people have tried to do things. It's just quite a simple approach. We then write to the seller and say to them, these are your options, what do you want to do? And we keep in touch with them. We've got quite a big system in place, which looks after them as well. So it sends them emails, text message. It, it was an expensive system for us to put together, but it means the guys are busy talking to people generally, and the system's doing a lot of the communicating so that when the guy's ready to put his house in the market, we'll have spoken to him seven times when other people might have phoned him back twice and then it, it's fallen away. So from my point of view, it's about having, yes, the reach and spending the money to do that, but then having four different exits. Not a lot of my businesses are based on having multiple exits. If you've got lots of exits, you've got a lot more chance of doing things. And then having the people there who can kind of deliver the service. So it, it's difficult. It's like trying to set up an airline and competing with BA. You might get one, your first plane might get you from London to, to Glasgow cheaper, but overall, you're not it's a quite a tough thing to do. And there are people who are bigger and better than us down south who, who do significantly more. Can we talk a little bit about, obviously, the target market and the, the majority of you know leads that come into you? Uh, is, it, is it kind of people who kind of fall into the category of, you know, the three Ds, death, divorce, uh, and debt, you know? Uh, is it people who are looking for, for quick sales and, you know, an easy route out? Um, and also stemming on from that, after you've sort of touched on that, as we sort of, you know, sit here today and, and chat through this podcast, we're pretty much facing um, a big recession looming over the top of us. Um, and obviously it started off as a health crisis, probably going to be a financial crisis eventually. Um, is that going to bring opportunity for people like yourselves who, I mean, you obviously, you set up the auction business and the kind of trading business back after the last recession is this going to bring big opportunity for you again and is that something that people who are operating on a lower level you know can try and and get into because there are more opportunities coming up from these circumstances yeah so so to answer your first question first which was about what type of people do we deal with um so death, debt, and divorce, those are three things that, that happen in life or death, or however you want to look at that. And that does cause friction, and that friction then creates a situation where a house needs to be sold. Um, I use, um, I've got a, a group that I own called Partners of Property Down South, so I talk quite actively in that group. There's maybe 250 members, and I'm one of the partners. So, And I just use that the, the same expression. Three-bed semis never phone me up and say, can you buy me? It's not about the house at all. So it's always about the people. And then from that point of view, it's always solving the per the person's problem, which could be death, debt, divorce. And I would say the majority of the people that we deal with just now, that there is a re an overwhelming reason to sell the house quickly, but they're not in the same levels of financial distress as they were maybe seven or eight years ago, that they've got reasons. A lot of it now is to do with, they've inherited the house, they've had it six months, it's run down, they thought they would do it up, they can't be bothered doing it up now, or they can't, don't have the skills or the money to do it, and it's time to get shot of it. But it's been in the market now for three or four months with an estate agent, they can't afford three sets of council, or two sets of council tax, they can't afford running costs, they've tried with the agent and it's now time to get shot, and that's that, that, that's a fairly typical thing we look at. We've got a few people just now who are distressed landlords. Um, and so at the moment, I've maybe got 100 houses in my pipeline over COVID that I'm trying to buy. And of those 100 houses, 
95 will be in portfolios, I think, just now at the moment, where the landlords are saying, um, they're saying, well, it's time for us to get out. We're either too old, we find some other place to hide our money and go and another business that might be better. We don't like the hassle. We don't like the grief. Section 24 is causing us tax inefficiencies, all that kind of stuff. And the call I've got after this this afternoon is with a guy who I'm hopefully buying 82 houses from. It was due to settle Friday of lockdown. Bank pulled the funding on it. So we're about to start rejigging that discussion just now. And he's a multimillionaire. His family have been doing this for years and years and years. The bank don't like this bit of his portfolio. He does stuff down south. He's bought nine houses in London over the kind of COVID crisis. Um, I was chatting to him about it last week. And so he's been active doing that. So all he's doing is displacing, displacing his capital out of a Scottish rental portfolio. Yeah. So that is, op- that is opportunity, what I was talking about. So that's, that's one yeah. opportunity to stress. Um, uh, tired landlords, Section 24, with the latest COVID and all that, they're just like, it's time is now to get out. What's your view generally now, so, just coming on to the whole? So, so COVID, yeah, so the COVID thing and what you were saying about 2008, 2008 I didn't accept was a problem until 2010, and then I realised it was a problem, so I was quite late to it, naive or gallus or, or however you want to look at it. This time, um, we reacted super fast. As soon as we thought there was a, a, a sniff that the lockdown thing was going, um, my various businesses, I furloughed the people in them that I could. I kept a couple of people to tick things over. We moved really, really quickly. Mandy and I had a, a long discussion after lockdown about what we're going to do because all I could think about was I've got something like 15 companies currently, um, 10 of whom are active doing things. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be really bored. My, my big sites are going to be closed. My building company's not doing anything. Estate agency's not really going to do much. The auction will tick over, but there's no involvement. What am I going to do? Um, I can teach my wee boy to ride his bike. Yippee, that was great fun. Um, you can have fun and do that and have family time, so that's good. So we set up another business 12 weeks ago and um, and basically concentrated in setting that up. I set it up from my bedroom. Mandy worked out of our living room, which isn't the same place, I would point out. And... Uh, we, we set that up and, and worked it. So there's opportunities come out of everything. And it's I think it's looking at what you can do and what you can get other people to do as well is the kind of key thing. It's not just about what skills I had. And this one we had involved as an import business. We started importing um, PPE, gowns, masks, all that kind of stuff. And I've never I've never even bought anything on Amazon. So to be fair, it was it's quite an interesting process. Um, but I had to learn how to do that. We had to find people that could help us do it. We had to find shippers. We had to find people in China to help us get the stuff. We had to find people in the NHS to buy it. We had to find, you know, it was a quite a complex set of things. But we went and used all our contacts to work our way around that. So that was the first thing I did in COVID. But now when you look at it, the actual medical side of the problem might not be as bad as everybody expected before. And I'm just judging by what other people are saying. I'm not one of these guys that goes on and argues or talks about what's going to happen with the economy. I've sit and listen to the, the big brained guys and they can argue out and decide what's what's going to happen or what's not. Um, but I do think we're, in, we're, we're steering down the barrel of a gun just now. I think we've got, if we come out of lockdown, I'm not sure, I didn't hear Nicola today, but I'm not sure that she's given the go-ahead for estate agents to start back, according to what I've been told. Um, but people are allowed to move house again on the, as of the 29th for normal moves. So it feels like we're starting to ease a wee bit. There's not a lot of stock in the market just now, so um, prices are going to remain relatively buoyant. There's loads of people over lockdown who um, I think I thought, I want out my house. I want to move from a flat to a house. I want a garden. I'm lucky I've got a house. It's a decent size. I've only got one wee boy and my wife living there with me. And we've got a big garden. So we had a brilliant time. I think other people are thinking we don't want to be in a two-bed flat with a veranda or a cottage flat with a garden. We'd like to move now. So I think there'll be quite a lot of stimulus in the market now because of that. Um, and I think for the next two or three months, I think prices will rise. And I think, um, or certainly stay flat. I don't think there's much chance short-term of house prices dropping. Um, however, the underlying trends within the economy suggest that we're going to have pressure on prices. One of the major house builders was claiming yesterday, house builders are going to need help. And I'm like, well, how's a company that made a billion pounds last year really going to need help? It doesn't make any sense at all to me. But you can see the government's up for helping people out just now. So that's what they're going to do. But where I think it will get interesting is the people who have spent their bounce back loans. I met a shopkeeper a week and a half ago who was telling me he got three bounce back loans yeah. of 150 grand. I asked him, what's your net profit out of your shop? He's only got one shop. And he said, oh, I was about, I made about 18 grand last year. 
I'm all right, how are you going to pay back your bounce back loans if that's, ah, well, let's not worry about that, but I'm going to buy a new car, which is obviously what bounce back is there to do. It's, 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 it's there to stimulate the economy and get things going. But I'm just thinking, how's a guy who's a shopkeeper with a, a semi-rural shop, it's not even a, a busy city centre one, he's going to struggle to start to pay that stuff back. So I think there'll be businesses that quite quickly get caught out. Things won't come back. The poor quality agents will struggle. So then the banks will start to say, well, we're not relending, we're not giving you more money. And then the people who are quite successful, some might say, well, that business that doesn't really work for me anymore. We'll pull the plug. At which point, I think October, November becomes the land of opportunity. That's what I'm... I totally, ag- I totally agree with you. And just one thing about the bounce back loan thing. I think in the hands of the wrong people, the, the bounce back loans are potential disaster because like you said i've seen a few people on on my instagram my social media younger people you know who have possibly stepped off the back of the property strategist courses and you're like that they've turned up a new motor and you're like oh my god this is dangerous yeah absolutely you know you're talking about cars is an amazing thing where um, i'm right into cars and uh, i make money in houses and i lose money in cars my wife will if she's listening to this she'll that's exactly the way familiar. And, uh-huh. and uh, she said, I'm trying to make more than one and lose less than the other. That's the, that is the marginal gap I'm looking for, trying to go that way. But the um, Land Rover have just brought a new Defender, which I, I love Land Rover Defenders. And the Land Rover garage phoned and said, we've got a couple of cancelled orders. Do you fancy one? And I went, yeah, I'd, I'd love that. And I'm thinking, well, there must be a deal here. So this might be really good. I could sell my cars. I'll get more than mine's are worth, mine are worth, and uh, get something cheap. And uh, I said, so is there a deal? And he went, no, no, I'm just, I'm giving you the opportunity. And I said, everything is going anyway. And he's like, oh, we sold 39 cars in the last seven days. They're absolutely flying. And which is the opposite of what I, I thought in my head. And I'm, I buy cars regularly. And I was thinking, I was thinking the car trade would be on its knees. There's, um, got, to be a, there's got to be a price to pay somewhere along uh, down the line for all this stimulus and all this money that's just been thrown into people's hands willy-nilly, you know? Yeah. So, But that's what you're talking about, the opportunity going into uh, what happens in property. If I was at, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to do in my auction company or my some of the, the trade sales we have to investors, but the reality of it is I wouldn't be um, sticking my hand in my pocket just now to buy something unless it was a really, really good deal. Because I think the chances especially if you are new to this. And by new, I mean two, three, four years. I'm not even talking about decided six months ago. You're going to get into property. The likelihood is prices will remain strong. The likelihood is there's lots of people with bounce back money and these kind of things in their pocket just now. The, the lenders, so for example, Together closed its books for quite quickly and um, they're back relending a wee bit just now and they're getting back into it. But lots of other lenders are out there who's quite a bit of money from Together in the past. And they are a great company to deal with if you know how to deal with them. But the reality is there's quite a bit of money swishing about. People are keen to do it. But I think you can see a 15 or 20% differential between the price you pay in July to what you're going to pay for the same house in November. It's quite hard to make 15 or 20% in a property. So if I was um, thinking about this logically, the best time to buy will be kind of later in the year when you get to that kind of the, into the winter months and there's a bigger chance of a resurgence of the of the main issue that's going on just now second wave nobody knows what yeah. will happen but I, I, think, I think if you're developing and flipping and obviously and you know the profit is obviously key to getting in and out and um, then that's totally the strategy to use but i think like a lot of people that we talk to and me, myself and steven we're building portfolios for the long term so the 20 to, yeah. 20 to 25 years so, you know, I'm probably going to buy a couple in the next few months. I'm not going to get carried away and go to closing dates and stuff like that. But, you know, I might lose 10%, 15% later down the line in a year or two's time. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily worry me. But I know I know that over time it will come back yeah. up. Anyway. Okay, so, so, but my only rationale to that is how long have you been doing this? Uh, since properly since like 2000 and well 2005 I bought a couple and then I've taken it to a sort of next step sort of 2000 but my point here is you've been doing it for 15 years you run your own lending agency you've flipped and traded things you've got a pretty good understanding of what's what's going on with this Stephen's done developments he's done flips he's done all sorts of things and in terms of Picking your strategy now, I'm, I'm more talking to, to people who might be six months in, a year in, two years in, and thinking they need to buy to flip just now to get into the next one, mm. or 
you know, from your point of view, you might buy a couple. Um, you might have some money in the bank to be able to do that and to do it. That's absolutely fine. Uh, one of my main strategies going forward, which I set up um, at the beginning of this year, or one of my targets, is is portfolio building, which although I don't like it, I've got right into it. So I'm, I'm quite keen to build it. And I think that's fine. So it's fine for people like us to sit and say, yeah, I'm going to buy some houses over the next few months because you understand the risks. And if something goes wrong, uh, you're not reliant on that, that bit of business to get yeah. you out of a problem. What worries me just now is that people are thinking, well, you know, the last house sold for 100, so I have to pay 102 for this, when the same house might be available at 90 or 85 in six months' time, but they need that money. So they're not, they're not going to get out of it later on. That's the bit that kind of concerns me with it. Ross, I just want to know, what, what's the strategy for your um, the portfolio building business then? Is it, you know, is it, is, I'm assuming, knowing, knowing you and having the, in the conversation with you on this podcast, that's going to be a massive big target. Yes, yeah, so it's 10,000 houses. Wow, <laughs> that's some goal, man. <laughs> uh, what age are you hoping to live to? Uh, absolutely. So, so it's 10,000 houses, 10, houses over five that? years. Over five uh, years? Yeah, so, but it's, it's just like, and I know this sounds like property education, but setting yourself the right goals, this is not a Grant Cordone 10x type, well, let's, let's go and do this. This was for me, I think I buy 1,200 houses in Scotland, roughly over seven years with a couple in England thrown in. What could I do throughout the whole of the UK? What do I need to do? it? So I followed a guy, I met him on social media, met him at a couple of weeks, a guy called Adam Lawrence, who has actively been buying. I introduced him into buying stuff in Scotland. He's bought a few things off me in Scotland. And we set up a business called 4E Capital, which we set up six months ago, maybe. Um, within that, we've probably got maybe 100 houses under offer just now. We're currently doing a development of 10 down in, I don't even know where it is, but it's down south somewhere, um, Lincoln. And we're doing a development of 10 units, eight flats and two shops down there. Currently looking at a hotel down in Torquay. Um, I'm looking at stuff. In, so I chose, if I'm going to buy a portfolio, I really want to buy across Middle England stuff that's maybe worth 100 to 120 grand, try and buy portfolios of stuff. So north of Birmingham, across from Manchester, all the way over to the East Coast. And I'm not fussy about what I buy because when I grew up in East Kilbride, everybody always said, oh, Hamilton's shit to live in. And I always thought Hamilton was this gruesome place. But then when you go to Hamilton, you, you, you kind of realise Hamilton is just the same as East Kilbride. There's no difference. But the people in Hamilton used to hate the people from East Kilbride and with the same passion. So once you go over that, and you should, as an estate agent, you kind of know, come back, I've worked in East Kilbride, I worked in Cumbernauld, you work in all these places. They're all quite similar. Once you go over the, 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 the layering of where you're from and what it's about, you can buy anywhere. And I just thought, well, I can keep buying stuff in Scotland. Instead of selling it, I'll... Um, I'll keep it as a portfolio. I've organised um, a guy down south who will manage it for us. I'm doing it with Adam, so I've got good access to his knowledge as well. So the strategy to buy the portfolio at massively discounted price, fund it or refinance it to a kind of higher value to keep the, the, the cash circulating? or Yeah, so back, back, try and buy it at 60 or, 60 or 70 pence in the pound. Either use capital or um, investor funds, which we've done a wee bit of, or and bridging finance to buy it and um, then refinance it back out onto, I think interest rates are going to be quite low for a wee while personally. So uh, I think whether that follows on for buy to let interest rates, I don't know, but just now if you can borrow it three and a half percent and you've got a yield of 10%, there's a bit of margin in there for, for voids and things, but I've outsourced all that stuff to other people in this. So my job is the, the, the sorcery bit or the sourcing, bringing the stuff in, getting access to the deals and helping facilitate a bit of the funds if we need to deploy funds to be able to buy things. So then buy it, you flip it back out into, into your portfolio. Sorry, what was your shift in kind of mindset? Because I've spoken to you, I'm sure, before a few years back and all that. And, you know, I think it's fair to say you're pretty much you know, against holding assets and dealing with tenants and all this sort of shit. I mean, I'm pretty sure I had a phone call with you once and you were like, I've got yeah. a nightmare tenant just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the thing, I'm not motivated by money at all. I'm motivated by time. So the thing I found really irritating when I had, I think, 40 flats at one point, I won 40 houses in the portfolio, and you just seem to be fixing boilers, doing this, doing that, trying to make sure tradesmen didn't rip you off. I know this whole sounds a bit bad, but, you know, 
it actually was it was punishing. Then you gave it to a letting agent. Then you tried to make sure the letting agent didn't rip you off the tradesman, didn't let, rip you off the tenant. And so I found that really, really annoying. So my, my shift in mindset was that if I want to grow bigger and I've got ultimately three or four or five streams of income that I want to have coming into me and I want to get that to a significant size, I need to get over myself a wee bit and just deal with it. And part of that was... Um, Listening to if you listen to some of Adam, he's in lots of podcasts. He's a, he's a really good guy to talk to. He's very knowledgeable. He's very bright. He's one of these big brain people. And I listened to two of his um, performances on stage, if you like, in terms of how he's building his portfolio. And one night I just was thinking, do you know something that absolutely works? And so I approached him and said, look, you've bought stuff from me. I've made money out of it. You've then held, gone on to hold on to it. So what if we could do something together and just buy it together? And that way it takes out a layer of trade so there's money saved there I'll put some money in you put some money in and we get going with it and that it kind of came from there but part of it came down to the fact that I realized I didn't need to do anything once we got the house so anything that I'm left to do is done badly anything that they do they seem to get it done quite well and he's got a he's got a mechanism for doing it so we buy one of my things is if I buy if letting agents introduce me to something we'll just leave the stuff with them so we don't you know, you're not picking it up, giving it to one letting agent to deal with. So if Nick, you were to bring something, it was a decent deal and we bought it, it would stay with you for doing stuff. So you're just constantly trying to build relationships and that, I think, helps you get the stock further down the line. Cool. I know, listen, a question that I want to ask you, right, which, because I hear you talk about it time, time again, you're obviously operating at quite a high level, right, with all these businesses. You talked about having 10 active businesses and you've got like, you know, I'm envious of you because... It, you know, I've met you in Costa Coffee and stuff before and you turn up and you're not all suited and booted and you've got like everything just ticking along the background and you know, you're, you're at a high level just kind of overlooking it all. You say that you've got the staff, the systems and all that and I'm thinking, you know, I'm running a small letting agency. Well, it's really just me and I'm thinking, how do I progress to the next level? You know, get staff, do I need the headache of staff? My question is, it couldn't have always been like that. Roll back to when you started your initial first auction company and that. You must have been going out there evenings, weekends, doing all the work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we did 266 Dumbarton Road beside Archibald Sharp's office, when I went out on my own, um, and so I didn't have any, I had two desks at the front office that I bought for a tenner, and there's a wee glass screen, and then in the back office, I had my computer set up in two cardboard boxes with a seat, and just you just sat there, I took the phone calls, I spoke to the people, I went out and tried and pitch for the business, I would come back, I would write the stuff for right moves, so it's the same as everybody else, it's just a... You know, you're doing it all yourself, you're making it work, you're working from six in the morning till ten at night. I quite like work though, so for me that's not really a major thing. Um, I wasn't really socialising much, I was keeping my head down and kind of worked like a dog to make it happen and you kept grasping at every single opportunity. And the thing you learn from that quite quickly is you're going to get told no a lot, so the quicker you're told no, the quicker you go on with things that can actually make, can, can become yes. And yeah, so it was, it's always like that. But for me, quite quickly, um, it was all about trying to find people who could do the jobs so, and having to pay them before I get paid. So lots of people talk about different ways when you set up businesses, but for me it was finding at the time what I thought were good people to come in and do a job which released my time. So then came back to this whole, you might have to pay somebody money to do that job, but then my time started to get freed up and freed up and freed up. And I think because I had decent market knowledge, I was able to able to value things quicker. I wasn't having to speak to surveyors all the time. You weren't having to, you could do quite a bit yourself. So there was a bit of a time sinking or a time saving there. But yeah, I did absolutely all of that to begin with. What years would you say was the hardest work then? When did you work the hardest? So in, in my whole career? Yeah. Uh, the years, the two years or three years I trained with Slater Hall from 92 to 95. Um, that was the hardest because you were told, being told what to do. You were working like a dog. You were working for no money. What it didn't, what, what I didn't understand at the time was that was it was the best education because for me it just gave me my work ethic. So that, that by far was the hardest. As a business person, 2008 to 2010 was horrific because you're having to lay off people. That's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. You're having to lay off people who um, you know are not going to get another job. And these are just tough, tough times. But for me personally, um, I, I, money's not the big thing so the fact I was zero didn't have money affected the people around me more than it affected me because at the end of the day I just assumed that 
you know, once we get going or once I've worked out what to do, that side of it would come back. Working hard for me, I got up at half six, maybe not for the last 12 weeks, but COVID's been interesting because it's the first time I've ever worked from home. I've quite enjoyed it. Right. Um, I used to go, up and you'd go out at half six in the morning, you come home at half eight, ten o'clock at night, you'd, you'd be doing emails. That for me is standard. I quite like doing that. I like what I do. And if you had to start like completely from scratch, because again, we get a lot of people who are wanting to get in, you know, they want to leave, they're sick of their nine to five job and all that. And they don't know, for some reason, property is glamorized. We all know that. And if you speak to like, I don't know, 80% of the population, you know, it seems like everybody wants to get involved in property. But, you know, you basically went through Slater Hog, you know, as a trainee, estate agent and all that. And then that brought opportunities from there. Too many people want the fast route. You know, if you were to start from scratch right now and you wanted to get involved in property, how would you go about it? It's hard. It's actually quite hard for me because I never, I came out of uni trained to be a surveyor without a view that I was going to be an estate agent. I never really chose it. It kind of just fell into my lap. So, But if you were like, if you knew what you, like with all the resources and that that you've got on the internet, you know, like, you know, deal source. I definitely wouldn't be doing property. So so to be honest. Nah, I wouldn't be. Property is too slow a way to accumulate money, even flipping and trading. And I get I've got businesses that turn over lots of money, but there's an awful lot of risk involved in that. And you're uh, subjected to um, the trials and errors of what happens in the marketplace and how it goes up and down and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of people use equity as a barometer in property of how wealthy they are but my question is always can you eat equity can you spend equity it might be there and it might be something you know you can release in the future but it's not cash flow so if it's property they want to get into I, I don't think I think if, you, if you're wanting to buy property and hold it I think being an estate agent is a spectacular thing two years of working in an estate agency is will teach you what the market is not so much a letting agency because it's a bit more layered because you're with letting agents, you tend to be sitting one specific area doing one specific thing lots and lots of times. Um, if it was me, I would be working in a state agency and buying a buy-to-let properties in the background, buying nice, tidy flats I don't have to do much work to. And building up your contacts list and you know meeting people and just building up relationships and stuff. Cool, cool. Well, we've got, only got a few minutes left, Ross, and I don't think we can leave without getting an update on a specific development that, that has caught a lot of people's attention. Um, so this is the church development in Glasgow. Can you just give yeah. us a quick quick brief background about that and where you're at with that? Because I think a lot of people yeah, are sure. really interested and it's been on social media. You put a lot out there. so. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I bought it four years ago. I was the third top offer. Um, and I got to buy this lovely big uh, sandstone church off Byers Road. Um, I got development finance through Lend Invest um, after I bought it, and it uh, started redevelopment. It went fine. It went it went fine in terms of it was hard work, and we made lots of mistakes, and the cost overruns, and developing a church isn't an easy thing. But we were about six eight weeks away from finishing, or it was it was almost finished. Somebody broke in and set fire to it, um, which was horrible. The actual fire damage was dreadfully small it was very very light I think people thought it was burnt out inside and it wasn't so there was smoke damage and there was some water damage from the uh, fire engines which was sat on either side of it so it, it then so that was last Mother's, Mother's Day 2019 and since then it's been a bit of a set of trials and tribulations at two insurance companies one was the developer as well as the I was the developer as well as the builder so the developer had the building insured and the contractor had the contracts works policy. So Keith Story, who was my insurance consultant, um, who's a pretty strong player in that marketplace, has worked solidly for the last 15 or 16 months to try and get these things agreed and across the line and to make it work. In that time, it's obviously racked up um, development finance. They had a set amount of money owed on it, and that's just plugged up and up and up on a monthly basis. So it's been, that's been quite hard work for me for this year, actually just keeping the lenders happy and keeping or getting the information for the insurers. Um, there was theft on the site prior to me, um, which came out after the fire that had taken place before the fire. So we had all the, the kind of HR issues to deal with with that, which was pretty horrific. And we also had to go through a full accounting process of what's been, because of that, what's been delivered to the site, what's not, where it's gone, how's all, and dealing with people have been involved with various minor frauds that have been involved with it. So it was a kind of that whole side of the last year or 18 months has been horrific but tricky. So it's just been a hard thing. You just keep having to plot your way around individual problems. 
Um, November, December, the, the roof was open at two points. The lender was saying, don't touch it, because I think they were thinking if they had to repossess, they didn't want other costs associated with it. Um, but eventually, I just I, I raised the money myself. Um, we sold a couple of houses, and I started to fix this, the roof fix, so that done. And we started to rip out inside. Um, we got to about, we're about eight, ten weeks away from finishing and then COVID hit. So Calma are on the job just now. They're doing a good job of fitting it out. And I was in today, I was there with uh, the building warranty inspector going around it. And the top four or five levels are perfect again. They're just waiting for the kitchens, which are still in Germany, to come. And the basement levels are all good. They're all sorted. And the other thing that I'm doing um, the lift, I've got a glass lift that goes six stories through the building on all the various levels because it, it feels like a church inside and that is, uh, so I'm replacing that just so it's all brand new and nobody ever says oh, it was smoke damaged or it was fire damaged or any of that kind of thing. So probably finish it in October. It's quite funny because it won um, Property Development of the Year award at a ceremony in London so it was quite a cool thing to win, quite unexpected and my wife was saying to me, she said, are you going to go back in for that this year again once you've finished it? I'm like, I don't think it was yeah, really going win, win twice <laughs> to the season. <laughs> Mate, like after you've been through all that, you definitely deserve an award. How many units is in that development? So there's, there's 24 units. Uh, one of them, we've put one of them together, so there'll be 23 in total, which is 20 in the main building and three muses out the back. GDV is about 10, just under 10 million. Right, brilliant. And is it planned to sell them all? Yeah, I've got. I think we've got fourteen of them sold just now. So I've got the, the rest of them to go. I'm hoping to live in it. I've, the ones I put together are going to be my house or my home. Um, so um, yeah, so I'll sell most of them off. And obviously, like it's been hugely emotional, right? And it looks like a stressful. I mean, has this been the biggest development that you've done to date? Like in terms of you know scale of building? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miles, yeah, yeah. By miles, I, I did that building. Cluston Street that I think you were involved with at one point. There was yeah. a building there that I bought and so I've done a few buildings, but nothing like this. This was a this was like Scotland's dearest badminton court and we had to fit twenty flats into it. So my question is, would you go through all that again? Would you do another one of that scale again with all the stress and the, the, the problems and that? Yes. So if you'd asked me that three or four months ago, I'd say no, but that's because I've got a kind of rich vein of property coming to me and I can buy, sell and flip. So the opportunity, it's not just doing the work, there's an opportunity cost there of not doing something else with the time and the money. Um, so, But now where we've got it back on, I kind of know where the problems lie and all that kind of stuff. I have looked at another couple of sites, I'm getting access to stuff down south. And so, yeah, it just, just seems to be sensible now to do that, um, it would be insured differently. Depending on how the insurance claim goes, and obviously you've racked up a lot more development costs with a delay, about 15, yeah. 15 month delay on with the fire, yeah. I take it that that's still going to be financial success, the, the project. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I, th- I think with the way it works out with insurers, um, they, we produced a set of costs for them, and I'm not, I'm not insured for the interest payments. So the interest payments are about 1% a month, and it was on six million to start with so that's gone the simple mass are that's gone from six to seven million um probably there was a couple of million pounds worth of profit in the total deal all together with everything paid off and i think i'm hopeful that if things go okay and, and obviously covid might make some changes though we sold three or four flats in the last few weeks um, so i'm thinking it might come out at that kind of figure maybe a wee bit less than that um so ultimately i don't think i'll lose out of the period of time but the reality of it is I've, not, I've lost all use of that money over that period. Did they get the bastard that started the fire? No, no. The police were all over it as well. They were brilliant to begin with. They had a week where we went allowed near the building. The three squads of people checking everything, doing everything. Um, we were interviewed. I think, to be honest with you, when you're a developer and something goes in fire, everybody thinks you've done it. And I've watched Facebook posts. I've watched, I've heard things from friends who know people who live in the area. And everybody says the developer did it. So when I sat and spoke to the police, it was about two hours into the interview, I said, by the way, what you're not working out here is in four weeks' time, I'm getting 10 million quid back and I only owe 6 million on it. So there's a profit of that. Uh, so that happens in six weeks. This way, there's, I'm two years down the line, I might sell it for the same money, but all my costs have racked up. So the reality of it is there is no benefit to me. And he went, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's no benefit at all to me um, 
like having done this at all. I'm the I'm the only person that loses here. I'm the only person that loses out this whole thing. And in fairness, after about five minutes of questions, they were saying, "But everybody says you owe money." And I said, "Yeah, because you don't drive in in your Bentley at the end of the development. Go to people. That's a great job. You owe a hundred grand. No problems. There's your money. No problems. This you're, you're making people finish the job. You want them to be finished. That's how you treat tradesmen. You're, I've got no money to pay. You need to get it finished. I can draw down money. Once they got to that, it was fine. But no, they've never got. I think it was kids personally. My yeah. four you all could have done a better job of setting fire to it. <laughs> good. Right, listen, Ross, uh, you've been like really good with your time here and you've shared a lot. I mean, just 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 from that story alone, you've gone right into personal stuff as well. So we fully appreciate you being open and honest. Is there anything you want to mention to our listeners? Um, you know, either, you know, if people want to reach out to you on LinkedIn or... Yeah, absolutely. People, are, if they've got questions or queries, I'm quite happy to help. And um, if they want to reach out on LinkedIn, I, yeah, that's fine. I, I come back quite quickly. If they're looking for information for buying, for selling, for helping with any of that kind of stuff, um, John at National is great for, for getting involved with us and for buying stuff. And if people are looking to sell deals, I'm a quite an avid buyer. So, and I'm happy to take deals from anywhere. We pay fees. We'll do whatever we can to, to get things across the line. But I'm sure a lot of your listeners would like that as well. Brilliant. Well, listen, again, you know, really appreciate your time. And I think it's been hugely inspirational. I know right from the start, since I started following you on social media, Ross, and we've met a couple of times and you've given me, you know, good advice and, and words that, that have kind of boosted me and, you know, good. almost like a kind of mentor, if you like. So your checks in the post, is that what you're saying? <laughs> they say that again? Your checks in the post. <laughs> I didn't realise I was getting billed for these last <laughs> six years. Oh my God. <laughs> Right. Thanks so, very much, Ross. Appreciate your time. No problems at all. And thank you for the opportunity and having taken the time to chat to me. Right. Cheers, Ross. Bye for now. All right. Catch you later. Bye. Thanks.